0: Uh, This is the time at which you would be opening your Bible. Um, Maybe you're going to open a new tab. Maybe it's already there. Uh, But we are in Luke chapter 20. We've been working our way through the gospel of Luke. We are calling the series in Luke, The Good Doctor. And it's based on two very simple premises that Luke shows us. One is that no one is good except God alone. That's a claim of deity that Jesus made. And secondly, he says this, I came to seek and to save the lost. That's him on a healing uh, mission. I want you to notice the tagline of our series, which has been there all along, because Luke takes great pains to show us this. It is hopeful healing for all. Hopeful healing for all. What a message God is giving us in this day and age through the gospel writer, Luke. He's a doctor, of course, and so it's a play on words that it's the good doctor, Uh, and this hopeful healing for all message is needed now more than ever. How much is hope needed? Don't you need hope? Don't you wish there was a hope channel? Don't you wish there was something good on the internet that just screamed hope all the time? Well, good news, hope is available. Jesus has been modeling for us how to handle critics in the midst of what can seem like a hopeless situation. Man, that seems like a pertinent time for us. As Christians, we are called to love the best of these, the least of these, and the worst of these. Jesus' offer of hopeful healing as the good doctor really is for all, even our enemies. That's why Jesus says to love your enemies, and he doesn't just talk about it, he does it. One of the things we've been paying attention to in the Gospel of Luke is something that is fairly unique to the Gospel of Luke amidst the four Gospel writers. And that is this He takes great pains to show us the hugely countercultural actions of Jesus, He highlights Jesus' warm inclusion of women in the Gospel story. He also highlights the inclusion of children and their importance, elevating them in their importance in the story, and then also of the racially segregated Samaritans over and over again. We see this in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus came to break the shackles of law living, and instead he tells us the good news and says, now get on with good news living, with gospel living. What's the difference? Well, law is essentially do, right? Do this and you'll be okay. Gospel living says done. As in the perfect life can't be lived on your own. It's already been done. And so we look to that and walk in that. So law is due, gospel is done. We repent of our sins and then place our full weight, our full trust on Jesus. our righteousness. That's the good news. That's why Christians are giddy, not just on Sunday. We can't stop smiling because we keep thinking about this. We keep coming back to this. We keep needing this in our life. If you are new to what Jesus is all about, he summed up what it means to get on with gospel living with two very simple things. In fact, he really sums up the scriptures this way. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. The second most important command, which is what? I heard you. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do you hear it? Love God and love your neighbor. Now here's the kicker. Law says, law tells your mind, all right, let's do this. Let's get to work. That's law. That will fizzle. That will fade. That will drive you to despair, or it will drive you underground, where you pretend you're loving Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself, but you're really not. That's law living. What does the gospel say? The gospel says, get on your knees. Love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and my neighbor as much as myself? Help! Law says, get to work. Gospel says, get on your knees. This is is impossible without the Spirit of Jesus Christ alive in you. This is impossible without Jesus forming Himself in you. This is the Christian faith, friends. So everything you hear from here on out, don't go through the grid of law. Don't go through the re- grid of, let me get this down so I can get to work doing it myself. You will fail. In fact, loving your enemies on the scale of um, you know, ski slopes and snowboarding, that kind of thing, this is like double black diamond experts only. You will die if you try this and you're not an expert. How do you become an expert? You lean on the expertise of Jesus Christ. Loving your enemies is the hardest call. In fact, it's one of the most radical calls found in the scriptures. So again this week, Jesus loves his neighbors well. Even those who oppose him, malign him, accuse him, abuse him. Catch this. Even those who are wrong. Oh, that's so hard for some of you. I have to love people who are wrong, but they're wrong. That's right. Jesus loved even those who are wrong. He loved them all. Let me give you a quick review of how we got to where we are and sort of the context so we don't just lift this out of the story. We need to hear the story. So Jesus enters the great city of Jerusalem to much fanfare and fireworks and celebration, and he's celebrated, but he is seen sobbing. Then like some Clint Eastwood character, minus the tumbleweed, the hand-rolled cigarette, and the impressive horse, Jesus clears the temple, which is a polite heading in my Bible that really gives um, a scene of Jesus unleashing righteous anger on those who were selling false ideas about God and profiting from the worshipers. Why is Jesus so mad? Well, as the cross of Jesus shows God's Payment for sin, the whip of Jesus shows God's fearsome anger at sin. Then Jesus sets up shop in the temple as a kind of big tent revival show and tell, but His authority is questioned because He's doing this, and frankly, He just questions the, the leadership there. He questions their authority in return. Isn't it true that questioning authority is sort of our new national pastime? Everyone's questioning everyone else's authority. Here's a little hint. You're probably leading someone. You're probably in authority in some way, shape, or form. How's your authority going? Everyone wants to question everyone else's authority without maybe starting with their own. So now he is teaching daily in the temple where he just booted out the fakes. The fakes don't go easily. They never do. Right, enemy territory gets pushed back. It always wants to come back uh, for a rebound. His sermons during this time aren't cute little Sunday school lessons that aren't offensive. In fact, his sermons included identity questions around uh, the, the now dead prophet and his cousin John the Baptist. Um, it includes stories about leaders killing prophets, which is happening current times and also happened in Israel's history. Um, he's covering thorny tax issues around loyalties to government or God. And he even has biblical disputes on marriage and the resurrection and what life is really all about. It's been quite a week and it's not over yet. Luke sets the scene and motive of what's going on in all of chapter 20 and 21 in his gospel with these words. Look at it with me. Luke chapter 19, we're going a little bit early, uh, uh, I mean earlier in the story, Luke 1947. Okay, it says this, listen for the scene being set. And he was teaching daily in the temple. Here we are. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. That's one side. But they did not find anything they could do. Why? For all the people were hanging on his every word. Remember the man? If you remember 1968, you know the man. The Near East man in ancient times are these leading people and scribes and Pharisees. What are they trying to do? They are seeking to destroy Jesus. Why can't they act? Because the people are hanging on his every word. What a sad commentary this is. Aren't the leaders... The spiritual leaders of a community, aren't they supposed to be hanging on every word of God? And yet here we find just the opposite. The common people, probably many of them couldn't read, didn't have a copy of the scriptures, are hanging on Jesus' every word, and the leaders are out to destroy him. When that happens, things are chaotic, and Jesus takes action. So what is their tactic in seeking to destroy him. How are they seeking to destroy him? Well here it is. It's wave upon wave. Of question after question. This is what they're doing. This is their, their tactic. And there are different leadership tech, uh, sects. And they've all sort of formed this alliance. Isn't it true that there are little unholy alliances sometimes that form around a common enemy? So you have the conservative religious types. Imagine someone in your world who's just the real conservative religious type. That would be the Pharisee. Okay? That's one sect of people. Now get in your mind another group of people who are the real liberal religious types. There are liberal spiritual religious types in our world. There are conservative religious types in our world. Who are the liberal conservative types in this scenario? It's the Sadducees. They were of very opposite ends. But man, here they are, teammates against Jesus. Now, we all know some uptight lawyer types. They might not officially hold the title of lawyer. They may swing a hammer for a living, but they're sort of the uptight lawyer types right you might be one or you might be a sibling of one or a friend of one or a roommate one or married to one okay in a good way they're gifting the body of christ and they're they're a gift to god's people but these people are the uptight uh, lawyer types and this would be the scribes okay so pharisees sadducees scribes you sort of see a mental picture they're all on the same team now against jesus that's how it's going They've been coming at him with their challenges, their questions, and their traps. Some of them have come at them at him really brusquely, as, such as in chapter 20, verse 2. By whose authority are you here? Right? Like, they just put their card down. Who do you think you are? This is our spot. Right? We're making money off God from here. But then others um, sort of couch it in really cunning terms, such as in chapter 20, verse 21. A um, teacher... We know that you truly teach the way of God, dot, dot, dot. And then they come at him with their question. Uh, there are some people in your world, you, you, you just know them. They're just sort of brusque. They just sort of hit it head on. There are others who are real cunning and real subtle, right? And they, they use the art of buttering people up before they try to knock them down. Let me just say that in this authority contest, it's not going well for the non-Jesus team. They're just not doing good at all. In fact, Jesus is sort of using verbal judo, and it's it's an absolutely stunning, beautiful thing to watch. Um, John's baptism, was that from, from heaven, or was that from men? This is Jesus answering one of their questions. I'll answer your question, but let me ask you one first. John's baptism, was it from heaven, or was that just a a man-made thing? And their answer, well, um, and they sort of gather together. I can neither confirm nor deny. I plead the fifth, right? Like, they didn't know how to answer that one, so they they punted. They just passed on that one. So he says, well, I'm not going to answer your question either. How about on whether to pay Roman tax? Man, this is a great question. I mean, honestly, if you don't know the end of the story, you're like, they got him. How's he going to get out of this one? Because if he says we're going to pay Roman tax, man, it's just going to cause an uprising. But if he doesn't, we've got him on record. We can nail him. What is Jesus' answer? He says, give back to Caesar the things that bear Caesar's image and give to God that which bears his image. Whoa! Verbal judo. I'm telling you, go back and soak in this. Go back and just read this. There's sheer, sheer brilliance being recorded so luke tells us in chapter 20 verse 26 so they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said do you see the flow of this there's attack wave after wave after wave now but undeterred they send yet another group it's almost like here mikey you try it i mean like let's just let's send you you go try and attack him And so uh, this time, instead of questioning religious or civil authority, uh, this was two weeks ago, uh, Ben talked about this, that the Sadducees question over scriptural authority, seeking to challenge the inspiration, the necessity, the cohesiveness of scripture. The Sadducees basically say it's written in the law, and then they paint this sort of ridiculous scenario of seven brothers having the same woman. How does Jesus answer that one? Jesus answers showing that they didn't know the first thing about the age that they lived in, nor the age to come. Furthermore, they didn't know the first thing about marriage or the resurrection life. So he took the teachers to school, right, and flipped it all on them such that they're like little kindergartners and they were supposed to be the professors, the intellectuals, the talking heads. And in Luke 20, 39, look at this with me because this is so powerful and this is where we pick it up this this morning. It says, the scribes answered. Okay, after Jesus gives their answer, the scribes reply back to him, teacher, you have spoken well. And then verse 40, for they no longer dared to ask him any questions. If this were a courtroom scene, uh, it would be the plaintiff rests, your honor. No further questions. Why do they have no more questions? They they did this because each question that was meant to trap Jesus actually esteemed Jesus and it disrobed their own authority, their own understanding. It just revealed their utter lack. And so the plaintiff rests, no further questions. At this, they think they're off their hook. Jesus has a question of his own. Not so fast, your honor. I've got a question. Let's keep this going. This is fun. So here's my title this morning. I want to ask you a question. Are you easily offended? Would people around you say that you are easily offended? I think the whole world is easily offended right now. Here's proof. Many of you are offended that I just said that, right? Like we just, we take offense at almost Everything right now. We are hair trigger at being offended. And furthermore, people are walking around on eggshells going, Yikes, there's so many groups to offend and say the wrong thing. How do I do it? I'm just going to stand in my little spot and not walk anywhere. Did Jesus ever offend you? It is well documented, both in the scriptures and in your current cultural landscape, if you look around, that Jesus offends many people both in his time here on earth, and it continues 2,000 years later. Jesus is constantly offensive. Here's here's the deal. We're not talking about that today. I'm tricking you a little bit. I'm doing a little play on words. This is an offensive scene that's going to come up, but I'm not talking about the word offense in that way. I'm talking about the word offense, as in Jesus takes offense. He takes the field on offense now, right? He has been defending question after question, and now he has one of his own. Why is there a picture of a lion on there? Well, Lion of Judah is sort of a little code name for Jesus. And there's another place earlier in scriptures we, we, we looked at this where his gaze is intently at them. Instead of backing away from conflict or letting the people off the hook, not wanting them to make, make them look bad in a shame-honor culture, it says Jesus looked intently at them oh man, can you imagine the gaze of Jesus? We have some record of what it must have been like because it says in several places about Jesus looking at someone. Peter, after he denied, right? Um, uh, Looks of love and acceptance and warmth and also looking right at in his enemies, right in his accusers, right in those who were seeking actively in that moment to destroy him. He looks intently at them with a piercing gaze. Who's the man in the Near East? We already know. Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, right? These leading people. They thought they were dealing with a kitty cat, and they're sort of starting to get a sense of who this Jesus is, right? And therefore, they had no more questions let's let this one lie let's go back to the drawing board let's refigure this out uh, one of the things we love is going to the san francisco zoo we have a membership there we've had it for years and years and years and i'm sure you've seen this scene i actually googled some things it's kind of funny to to watch some of these clips on on youtube where where your kid is there or someone's kid is there or some punk teenager is there and they're banging on the glass because the you know the the gorilla is right there or the lion is right there or whatever and it's all fun and games, you're banging on things, and all of a sudden, um, the, the lion might pounce. And all of a sudden, everyone who's there kind of, whoa, jumps back. We know there's a giant thick glass, we hope it's going to hold. But all of a sudden, we, 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 we are stunned back into the reality of this awesome power that is being restrained by, we, we pray the engineers did a good job on this, this barrier between us. I was watching this one clip, and this, you know, probably young adult, 20-something guy is pounding on the glass, and this lion comes in and, and, and sort of surprises him, and he falls back to, to his knees and gets up, and there's a crowd of people, and guys, what do we do when, when our buddy does that? We laugh at him, right? We laugh at him. We're like, ah, and we just start laughing. At him. He gets up kind of sheepishly and looks like he sort of mutters something to sort of try and save some shred of dignity that he might have. This is sort of, you know, this is sort of what what they're doing with, well, you know, they they dare not ask any more questions. All of a sudden, they get a sense of who this this kitty cat is that they're dealing with, and so they, they, they want to shrink away and regroup, lick their wounds, and come back for another fight, and Jesus is not so fast. I have a question of my own for you. Jesus goes on the offensive. What did Jesus use when he went on offensive? This is huge. Think about the armor of God. What is the one offensive part of the armor of God? You know it. Right here. It's called the sword of the spirit. The sword of the spirit is the one offensive part of the armor of God in this spiritual battle that we're in. It is so instructive, church, that Jesus goes on the offensive not because he's offended. Not with all sorts of crazy emotional accusation or whatever else. He goes on the offensive with the sword of the Spirit. So, we basically have two scenes that we're covering in our, in our text today. Scene one is Jesus asking a question of the frauds. Okay, that'll be part one. And part two is Jesus warning his disciples and anyone who's in earshot not to become like the frauds, okay? So he's going to ask a question of the frauds, and then he's going to um, give warning not to become like frauds. If, if you want sort of the central truth of the sermon, here's the sermon in 30 seconds. Here it is. Um, it's framed in the takeaways, how to live your life in response to this. Here it is. Give your life to understanding what God is saying, that's part one, and live your life based on on what you discover. Write these two things down. We will leave it up long enough for you to write this down. Give your life to, understand, to understanding what God is saying. Live your life based on what you discover. You know, a disciple is one who hears and does what Jesus says. These are paired so often in Scripture together. Who's the wise person who builds his house, not on sand but on rock? It's the one who hears and does what I say. Who is the blessed man according to uh, Jesus' brother, James? Well, it's not the person who's blessed simply because they are meekly receiving the implanted word, but it's the one who also does what it says. James 1.25, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. You see them paired together? Meekly receive the word. You're blessed when you pair that with obedience, with doing. And Jesus said it really simply in John 13, 17. Now that you know these things, part one, understand what God's talking about. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Do you hear these paired? Watch for this over and over and over. A disciple simply hears and does what Jesus said. Pretty simple to understand harder to live out all right let's take these one at a time so if you're taking notes uh that's a link below by the way if you want to pull that up that's a pdf give your life to understanding what god is saying in four short verses jesus shows us carefully uh wielding the bible he is rightly dividing the meaning and the application it's clear that jesus read the scriptures carefully, cohesively, and obediently, and so must we. I'm going to hold two objects in my hand to kind of represent the two parts that we are in, okay? This is my iPad. I use my iPad and my computer for a lot of biblical study. There are a ton of commentaries in here. There's every version of, of Scripture translation in every language ever living right here on this iPad. Okay? So I'm going to hold this representing um, doing the hard work of really carefully, cohesively, obediently reading the scripture. Digging in and rolling up your sleeves and taking pains to understand what God says. So I could hold my Bible, but but there's all these tools that reside as well as my Bible here. Now, I asked this question on the live chat. The Bible is, right? At its best, the Bible is this. At its worst, the Bible the Bible is this. Now, let me preface something. Lest you are unclear on what kind of church this is, on what kind of pastor is preaching to you, let me be clear that that the Bible, of course, does not change. One of the things about writing it down, right, is that it does not change. So the, the Bible does not change, either in its nature or in its message. The Bible doesn't change Um, But like all created things, sinful creatures use good things for good and for evil. God creates, calls it good, and the created world, right, can be shaped and formed and molded and used by sinful creatures for good and for evil. We looked a couple of weeks ago, Ben asked this question, you ever use your mouth uh, for, for wrong? The answer is, of course. If you say no, you just did. You lied. Out of the same created mouth and tongue, an error that passes through your tongue and mouth to form words. Out of the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. So the Bible doesn't change. When I ask that question, it sounds provocative. At best, it's worse. Um, but, but it can be used by, by creatures in different ways. Um, Donna. Donna you wrote this. At its best, it's heard. At its worst, it's peddled. That's almost like you've been reading ahead. That sounds a lot like our text today. Thank you, Donna. Bruce, at its best, it's the word of God. At its worst, it's a fairy tale. That's a good discovery, by the way. A lot of people are going to make the claim, we're going to look at this in a second, that it's a fairy tale, that it's not worth basing your life on. That's silly. Make that, uh, do that hard work of figuring it out. Rick, At its best, it's direction or comfort. At its worst, it's discipline. Now, he put worst in quotes. I think that means it's not really bad, but it sort of feels bad when you're getting disciplined by the word of God. I hear you, Rick. Ron says that it's best, it's provision for eternal life. Catch this. At its worst, it is misinterpreted as not open to all peoples. Man, hopeful healing for all. That's a good point. Heather, I think I liked yours best. Probably... Probably shouldn't play favorites here, but I'm just going to say it. I love Heather's answer. Heather says, at its best, it is the living word of God. What is it at its worst? The living word of God. Heather, you just proved my point, that the Bible doesn't change, right? We can sort of change our use of it. So thank you for uh, writing those in. I wrote this this week, at its best, the Bible is a sword, it's a light, it's a comfort, it's wisdom, it's a referee, it's bedrock, it's a window into the world of God, the heart of God, the mind of God. It is a love letter. What is the Bible at its worst? The Bible at its worst is a club used by a sinful person to beat people over the head. It's an icon, just sort of a symbol. It's a slogan. It's a smoke screen to hide behind. The Bible at its worst is a punching bag. The Bible at its worst is used to cover up great evil. The Bible at its worst has even been used in history as a call to great evil. How Jesus loves his opponents well. Every one of us, every one of you watching right now has people in your life that are cast as the villain. They're playing the villain in your story. You keep trying to write them out of the story. Every story has a villain. Every story has this conflict. Those who are seeking to destroy Jesus, those who are hanging on his every word. That's the story we find ourselves in. And Jesus says to love them. But loving the villains in our story, the enemies, those who oppose us, is challenging to say the least. Only by the spirit of Jesus in us can we hope to live like Jesus? Trying hard will only ensure failure. So what does Jesus do when people come at him challenging scriptural authority? Here's what he does. He gives them the Holy Scripture. We'll just sort of see this in a second. Plant in your mind this reality that not all scripture quoting is the same, right? Right? Just because someone adds a chapter and a verse from the Bible doesn't make it right. Many people I talk to quote the Bible, not because they hang on every word of Jesus, but because they're trying to destroy Jesus. It's good to talk to people who, who disagree with you. Let me say that again. It is good to talk with people who disagree with you. Many are sort of... Retreating into their own little ghetto, and they just keep wanting to feed their confirmation bias. Keep telling me what I want to hear. But you have loved ones, dearly loved ones who are precious in God's sight, who bear His image, who need you to be in conversation, and you need them to be in conversation with you. When I started getting vocal about my faith, shock of shocks most people at west valley college including my professors weren't that pleased about it they opposed me they challenged me they questioned me they mocked me openly some of them you know what it did it sent me back to the word it sent me back to god and i grew and i grew and i grew in my understanding so talking with people who disagree with you helps you grow guess what They may disagree with you because they're right and you're wrong. And so you change your opinion and you grow. Many people I love are not only um, atheists, but they are anti-Christian. And these are people I dearly love and care about. While I spend most of my time on knowing God's plan and knowing God's purposes and knowing God's way, I also like to sometimes really get my head around um, opposing views, right? And to hear from, from people that, that are speaking to them. Some of my friends and family quote Christopher Hutchins. Now, I can't have a conversation with Christopher Hutchins because he's, he's passed on. But he's a very outspoken atheist. He wrote a book called God is Not Great. I read that book. I just finished it. Uh, I read it over the last couple of weeks. Sort of in preparation for you know people who oppose Jesus Christ. Now, he lumps all of religion as utterly poisoning and really does a number on grabbing um, the Bible, which I'm a, you know, more of an expert on. I'm certainly not an expert on other world religions. But, but pretty predictably, sort of grabs and picks and chooses and does these different things. But I read it as an act of love toward those who are not just atheists or maybe agnostic. I'm not sure if God exists, but actually anti-Christian. I hear them quoting Christopher Hutchins. Sometimes they don't even know they're quoting Christopher Hutchins. But I wanted to understand their position, perhaps even better than they understand their position, um, to, kind of, to kind of just get into their world and, and hear what it is. It's a loving thing and good to get to know other people's positions. Frank Turek is someone who has stood right here, about 10 feet away from me in our little church, and he's a, he's a pretty amazing apologist, and um, he's a doctor. So Dr. Frank Turek's very first public debate was against Christopher Hutchins. And I'll just tell you, it's worth a view on YouTube um, because he demonstrates both the clear light of penetrating, dope back down truth, but he mixes it with humble grace and warmth toward his opponent. I'm going to show you just a clip of some of his opening comments uh, from this debate that you can see on on YouTube. Here's here's Frank Turek uh, debating. Christopher. Hunt. So hopefully I'm prepared for a very formidable opponent in Christopher Hitchens. And I do want to say that I very much like Christopher Hitchens. I've been following him for many years. I'm kind of a political junkie, so I've seen him around quite a bit. And I appreciate his charm and his wit, and I agree with him on a lot of things. Obviously not the issue of God. That would make a very boring debate. But I will say that um, I went up to Christopher just about a half hour ago, and I shook his hand, and I said, Christopher, I'm actually a fan. And he smiled, and he said... The night is young. <laughs> All right. So, so Frank is a disciple of Jesus and it shows. How does it show? Well, this was hosted by the, Unite, the, the United Secular Alliance, which he thanked, in a very non-friendly environment toward Frank and his worldview uh, about the existence of God. Why did Frank go do that? Why would he go put himself in sort of a hostile arena? I think it's because of this. I think it's because he loves Jesus and follows Jesus onto the field of offense. And so he goes in and not only defends, but he goes on the offense and talks to Christopher Hitchens about his worldview. So not all scripture quoting is the same. Christopher Hitchens quotes a lot of scripture in his book and in the debate. But adding a fresh garnish to a plate of poop is neither helpful nor healthy, right? Just because someone adds chapter and verse doesn't somehow make it right. The Sadducees have come at him, not for truth, but to trap. And Jesus calls out the sin and gives him. He sort of answers their biblical attack with biblical truth. So look at this with me. Starting in verse 41, it says this, but he said to them, How can they say that Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is is he his son? Jesus is essentially saying, you want to play Bible trivia trip-up games? Okay, I will plainly answer your question that you've thought up for me, uh, with the clear light of truth based on a careful reading of Scripture, and your turn. I'll give one of my own. So riddle me this. What is the apparent biblical contradiction here? What's the dilemma? What's the problem? It may be hidden a little bit from English speakers uh, because of translation issues, but it's absolutely plain to every Jewish person hearing this dilemma, both the learned and the simple. They would have gotten very clearly because of the language. David is Israel's greatest king. He is the hero of heroes. He's the poster child of all that's sort of represented of of good in the nation of Israel. So it is absolutely baffling to the Jewish mind how this theological knot could be resolved. Here's the riddle. The Semitic belief is that the father is always greater than the son, and the grandfather greater than the grandson. This was bedrock. This is set in stone. This does not change. So, Here's the underlined part of the quote that we're looking at. Jesus says, "How is the son of David also the Lord of David?" That's the crux of the riddle. It is unthinkable for a Jew to even joke around that somehow Isaac could be greater than Abraham. That doesn't make any sense to the Jewish mind. In a very literal sense, Abraham was before Isaac, right? Isaac actually owes his very dependence on Abraham being around. Beyond this, though, was the honor that is due those who are older and more experienced, right? That is a bedrock part of Jewish culture, too. It's true of many in the world today. This is utterly foreign to us in America, where people tend to idolize the youth and the young, and everyone's trying to get younger and hide their gray hair. Thank you very much. People in another part of the world are like, look at it, see the experience, see the wisdom, I got it uh, with with some truth, listen to me. So, lineage and respect for one's elder is unquestioned. So a quick word study sort of reveals what is hidden in our English translation. What Jesus is quoting from is the book of Psalms, Psalm 110 to be specific. And it's written in the Hebrew language. In the Hebrew language, there would be two different words for the word that we see translated Lord and Lord in our English translations. Let me show it to you so you can see it. It would say something like this. The Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, Adonai. Now, Yahweh is the name of God, but his supreme title is Adonai, which means sovereign one. Here is what David is describing. He is describing eavesdropping in on a divine conversation between God and David's Lord. It would be something like this. God said to my sovereign. Mind you, this is from the lineage of David, right? Generations after he lived, and yet he is calling him his sovereign. This is the riddle. This is the conundrum. So this one passage is affirming that there is a God, Adonai, who must be distinguished from God, Yahweh. It's impossible to reconcile this unless the doctrine of the Trinity and the Incarnation exist. What's the Trinity? Well, that's that God is distinctly three and yet one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What's the Incarnation? That's what we celebrate at Christmas. It's that God comes in human form, Jesus Christ. So in this one brilliant quote, Jesus unravels the mystery. Now here's what he doesn't do. He doesn't answer it. He just says, "How can this be? Um, those hearing that day, of course, don't have the tool of time. Time is a tool, It's a tool for understanding. It allows us to see just how this person speaking, Jesus, fulfills this messianic role, that he is both David's son. He came from David's lineage through Mary, and he's the son of God, and he's in one person. Church, hear me. This is a huge principle for us. Difficult passages are not to be feared, but to be studied. You're taking notes. Write this down. Difficult passages are not to be feared, but to be studied. I'm sure in this day and age, and through the ages, people have found difficulties in the Bible, and the faithful have said, we better hide these, or not discuss these, for fear of making God's great name somehow look confused and disordered. And opponents and doubters, if they're wise, they would go and find these apparent contradictions. And I'm sure people in that day said, what about this? How can this possibly be true? and the contemporaries of Jesus would say we're not really sure. We're a little bit confused on it ourselves. Church, give your life and it will take that. Give your life to understanding what God is saying. God is the perfect communicator. That's a truth that sits over here and God-inspired difficult texts to understand those things are both true here's the truth this is for our good it's for our development it's for our growth and this is what brings life if you're an older sibling you may have made things hard for your younger siblings for your own good right repent of that that's not right but as you grow up older siblings and you become parents and you have children and you're caring for these precious children, here's the flip. You now are making things hard on your kids on your best days for their own good. If you are a parent making things hard on your kids for your own good, repent, that's sin. But as a parent, don't we make things hard on our kids sometimes for their own good? Of course we do. You know, I have some children who love a challenge. I put the bar here, they jump over, they're like, I bet you, you know, you can't do higher. I'm like, oh yeah, and we just keep doing it. They love a challenge. I have other kids who hate a challenge. They shrink away. They whine. They moan. They just hate a challenge. So here's the pop quiz. Which of my kids do I challenge? All of them. Why? Because I love all of them. I love all of my kids. And so parents, don't we make things hard on our kids for their own good? Of course we do. That's how they grow. That's how they develop. So... That's how it is with God. He inspired hard texts. One of the beauties of going through whole books of the Bible is your pastors can't skip the hard stuff that's hard to explain. Instead, we rack our brains and we wear out our knees trying to figure out, God, what does this mean? How am I supposed to feed your people with this? Church, I call you to follow Jesus by the power of Jesus to grow up in this giving your life to understanding. Here are a couple thoughts. Read your Bible carefully and closely. Read it cohesively. Submit questions in this life to the authority of Scripture. Lean on Scripture as sufficient. We've already seen in this short time period of Jesus that Jesus quotes extensively from the written Scriptures. Even in the heat of angry response, what does he do? He is quoting uh, parts of the Bible together. That's what comes spilling out from him. He shoots down Bible trivia nonsense with accurate truth and interpretation that cuts through the games. It's clear that Jesus believes the whole of the Bible. It's powerful to see him quote uh, the law of Moses, the prophecy of Isaiah, and the Psalms of David. If you look at the Bible that was written in the time of Jesus, that's the law and the prophets and the wisdom literature by representation from its three most prominent people, Moses, Isaiah, and David. Finally, he shows that the path forward in understanding this life is not in writing new things, but in rightly understanding old things. Let me say that again. He's showing that the path forward in understanding our current times is not in writing new things but in rightly understanding old things. Does that mean it's wrong to write new things? Of course not. I am writing a sermon and I am creating content, but I am looking to the anchor of scripture that actually is ahead of us and pulls us into the future. That's what Jesus is doing. Finally, from this theme, before I move on, take the cue from Jesus and don't always be on the defensive. Christians always are being asked, well, how about this? What about that? What about this? Take a cue from Jesus and ask a good question once in a while right? Make people think about how they've landed on their own assertions. Maybe they are standing on sandy ground and they haven't ever really thought about it. So a good question comes in handy once in a while. So Jesus doesn't just know his Bible, but he lived it. And he warns us not to live a lie. So I'm going to take My iPad, which was the one of understanding it, and I'm gonna just take the shoes I'm wearing right now and say this is the physical representation of what it means to really live your life based on what you're discovering from God hearing, okay? So the iPad is what I'm studying and learning. Uh, My shoes represent where where I go, what I do with it. How does this invade my everyday life? Jesus is the good doctor, and he heals in many different ways, not the least of which is through teaching. Think about those of you who've broken a bone. When you go in to have your bone reset, right, the resetting of a bone allows it to restore its function and it stops its pain, even though it's really painful in the moment. Likewise, resetting a brain accomplishes the same. It restores proper function and stops the pain. I want to get to, um, Phil, can you skip to the, the passage slide um, past a whole bunch of others for me and get to um, verse 45? I want to just read this. You can bring that up full screen when you get to it. Listen carefully here. Jesus is now shifting his attention from answering the Sadducees. And now he says this. But in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples. So this is right on the heels of what we just read about that question. He says, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplace and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. He calls out the scribes to their faces. You think that's offensive? They probably took offense at that. He sees their sin and prophesies their condemnation. He's saying these guys steal glory from God. He's really concrete about it. It's not confusing how they do it. He says, from their dress code to their greeting rituals to the seating charts to their long benedictions beware! They're devouring widows' homes. There's a time for patient, gentle truth, and there is a time for urgent, harsh truth. Jesus is loving those in his hearing, all of them. For the sake of his disciples, the crowds, and those uh, committing the sin of hypocrisy, he is saying there is still time. Repent, turn, change, either from this lie you're living, or a warning, don't go down this path Of living a lie. This is what it means to live and discover, to to live what you discover upon understanding what God is saying. So be on guard against imposters. My father is uh, a retired captain of a 777 and uh, we've all been on flights or maybe you've been on a flight and you hear, this is your captain speaking. And if you fly a lot, there are predictable times when you do that and you tune that, that, that voice out. But if you've just gone through some turbulence and you hear, this is your captain speaking, you put down your book, you put down your laptop, you wake up from nap, you pull your thing down, you listen. You're dialed in to the captain. This is the guy flying the plane. You're hoping he's having a really good day, has a good marriage, is stable, right? That's, that's who you're hoping is flying your plane that day. This guy has something to say. I'm going to take a listen. Here's a shocking thing. Uh, In an article in World Magazine, they reported that the Pakistani National Aviation Minister, um, Kaluam Sarwar Khan, admitted that more than 30% of Pakistan's civilian pilots have fake pilot licenses and are not qualified to fly. It was reported that of 860 active pilots, 262 of these paid someone else to pass the test. Here's the point. It matters who you fly with. Right? When someone comes on and has a message for you, it matters who that voice is. Is it someone worth listening to? Is it someone who's qualified and worth trusting? If you're new here, let me tell you this. We have the Bible as our play look, playbook. That means those who lead this church, you can read the qualifications of an elder of this church. And so we're all reading from the same thing. You get to see who's qualified to lead. Hebrews 13, 7 says this. Remember your leaders and those who spoke the word of God to you. Listen to these two commands. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Consider how they live, the fruit of what they're talking about, and imitate their faith. So watch your leaders. You know what's harder? It's harder in coronavirus season to do this. In our little church, if someone gets off the stage here, we're able to sort of see a little bit of how they live, but it's still a mystery what goes on in our homes and all that kind of thing. Here's the powerful thing. Every single time I preach in one of our services, my wife and children are sitting in the service. If I'm talking about patience and hope and love and forgiveness, guarding your tongue and all these things, and you keep seeing my wife Oh boy, rolling her eyes if you hear deep sighs, or if they're boo, if they're booing, right? If they have signs fake. I mean these are giant telltale signs that go, oh, that doesn't really line up as much. A little bit harder to hide in a smaller church. One of the powerful things about a pastor just being in a community group is just being a regular Christian, being spoken into and shepherded and submitting themselves to the community just like every other sheep does. That's the beauty of the structure we have here. So, you'll have to take my word for it right now that we care deeply about not being imposters. And if we get to meet face to face soon, we can move forward with that. In just a minute, we're going to move on to closing our service out with a couple of songs. And before we do that, what I want to do is this I want to challenge you, church, to an action item. What is your next step in giving your life to hearing and understanding? what God is saying. Start with the Bible. The Bible is not the totality of it. Many of us this summer have spent time out in God's good creation, and the the creation is preaching a sermon every day, every night, if we're listening for it. But people say, I'm dying to hear the word of God. I'm dying to hear an audible voice of God. Read the Bible out loud, right? That's what's been said. So, So just do that, and you will hear God's audible voice. Soak yourself in Scripture. Memorize, think, sing, ponder, write, study, learn, ask questions. Join a church that takes the Bible seriously. Brennan Manning, in The Relentless Tenderness of Jesus, says this, seriousness is not the opposite of joy, but of superficiality. Don't take the written documents on the webpage or in the name that a church takes the Bible seriously measure the amount of time, measure what's done when you get together, measure the conversation of what that looks like. So what is your next step? I'm not sure. But if you don't know where to start, in humility, ask another older than you, how do I get studying the scriptures? If you already study and read the scripture, I would challenge you to share it with someone else. It's called teaching. And if you're a parent, teach your children. If you're a friend, lead a Bible study. Better yet, do it with a deadline. This is the work of a preacher. Every Six or seven days, it rolls back around that I'm teaching, and that's what puts a bee in my bonnet to move on it. But it's not enough to give yourself to hearing. Live your life in response and in line with what you are hearing from God. This is keeping in step with the Spirit. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for demonstrating how to use the sword of the Spirit (coughs) in an offensive way on offense God I pray that in our own life we would give ourselves to understanding what you're saying in every moment in every situation would yours be the loudest most prominent voice and God give us the grace and the power and the courage the fortitude the perseverance to just take it step at a time to walk in the ways of Jesus not to sprint ahead and quit Not to lag behind in sleep, but to daily receive our daily bread from you, our daily grace for today, and to grow up in you. You're a patient, good, loving Father. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.